The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome back to This Is Working. On every episode of This Is Working, we tackle big questions about how businesses and leaders are navigating the road ahead. And by road ahead, I mean these unprecedented times and this economic upheaval that is sure to change how we work and where we work. Today, we're speaking to one of the world's preeminent principal dancers, Misty Copeland. Misty is a principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater. It's one of the most prestigious dance companies in the world. She started dancing at the Boys and Girls Club in California at the age of 13. And if you know anything about ballet, you know that's a pretty late age to begin. But everyone who saw Misty move said that she was something special and they started throwing around the word prodigy. She wasn't just a genius dancer, she was breaking down barriers. In 2015, Misty became the first black woman to be promoted to principal dancer in the 75 year history of ABT. Over the past five years, Misty's career has diversified a bit. She's an activist, she's an author, she even became a Barbie doll. In our conversation together, we discuss how she got her start, how dance and the arts might come back from this pandemic even stronger, and the importance of lifelong learning, even for folks at the top of their game. Here's our conversation. So where are you right now? I am in New York City. I'm in Manhattan. I live on the Upper West Side. So I've pretty much been this the whole uh, quarantine. Just really getting to know your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, ask you a question before we get started and talk about the ballet industry and about the arts and some of the work you're doing. You know, right now at this very moment, the uh, first live interview with, or the live talk with uh, Kamala Harris and um, and uh, Joe Biden is going on. So this very moment. Now, during the whole Veep stakes, I was reading your book, uh, your biography, while this was all going on, and there are all these. People were saying, well, uh, you know, Kamala was was a little bit too, she was saying what she wanted to do. She was being a little bit too um, uh, audacious in, in saying that she wanted to be vice president, how she was getting out there. And while I was reading your book, you talk in this book about a year before you became principal dancer. You said flat out, look, I want to be a principal dancer. This is what I am here to do. And I'm wondering, while you were watching politics play out, and while you were watching someone who was, uh, in this case, another one of people who was the first or the only, you know, Kamala is the only black female vice presidential candidate uh, the U.S. has had. You've been the only black female principal dancer at ABT. I I would love to know whether any of this resonated with you. Were you seeing any of yourself as this was going on? I mean, absolutely. Often women, uh, black people and and black women, uh, women of color, are not allowed to say what they want. It has to be kind of this buried, hidden, sugar-coated thing that, um, you know, it's it's not delicate or graceful to go after your dreams and, and goals. And so I definitely feel... Um, you know, that a similar, you know, experience in terms of um, just how the world expects for us to be and and views us and limits us. Hmm. Um, And it's something that, you know, there's going to be a whole generation of young people that are watching Kamala whose lives have changed, whose paths have changed. And I feel, you know, that similarly to so many people that I meet daily over the years that, um, because they saw someone setting a different example and a different standard, it changed the way they viewed themselves and their possibilities. 
Was it hard for you to own that ambition yourself? Is that something you had to learn how to do or something you just had in you all the time? You were very okay talking about what your ambitions were. No, I was not uh, at all. I, I was um, quite the opposite of who I am now growing up. And and it's so interesting because I, I feel like the tools that I learned from being a part of the ballet world um, are what gave me the voice and the confidence to be able to speak up and know what I want and go after it. So it's quite interesting because I feel like the ballet world often uh, creates a type of person that, you know, we're in a silent art form. So we're often voiceless and we are um, forever students. You know, we, we don't speak. We're, we're being constantly being told what to do by the, the director, the ballet master, ballet mistress. And I mean, those names in itself say so much about the ballet world and how far behind we are. Um, but I think that the, there was something that I took from the structure of, of classical dance that gave me the confidence to believe in myself. So, um, you know, it's been it's been an, an interesting ride and I think a path that so many people didn't see for me as a possibility, but it always seemed so clear to me once I stepped into the ballet studio for the first time. Will you go back to that statement about the state of the ballet world or some of the terms that are used and where the industry is? Is this something that you feel like that you have to change, you want to change, are you okay with it? This is history, this is what the industry is. What's your role in pushing the world, your industry forward? It's been a struggle for me uh, always. Um, what drew me to dance, I mean, was to be able to uh, be able to express myself with my body, and, and you know, I was so shy and didn't speak, so it made perfect sense for me. But it was also being a part of a larger community. It was being a part of a history, and I feel like Black people in America don't really have this deep, rich history that you know that is ours and and there was something about ballet that i felt like well i am one of the dancers and so now this is part this is my history and there was something so beautiful and empowering about that but then at the same time it's a history that excludes me it's a history that excludes dancers of color um and and women who have you know more athletic figures at some point you know we can we can appreciate the history but we have to move forward and it's not letting go of, you know, the beautiful parts of it that make it what it is. Racism and blackface don't make ballet ballet. It's the incredible technique. It's being able to be um, innovators. And, and, you know, when you think back to Tchaikovsky and you think back to uh, different choreographers who created ballets in those times, they were, they were ahead of the game. So why are we still doing those ballets and not creating new ballets with with voices from people that will represent the world and represent America, you know, with American Ballet Theater. And when you think about how to push ballet into new areas and bring new faces or, or uh, more faces that are representative of what America looks like uh, into ballet, and, and then you counter that with what's going on in the economy today, and you see things are shut down, you got your start by going to the Boys and Girls Club and having teachers that believed in you and invested in you. As school districts and cities and states go through cutbacks to deal with this economic crisis, does that worry you? And, and as theaters are shut down or, or never come back from this, does that worry you about how well uh, this industry can diversify? I think that the more time that goes on, the longer it's going to take to recover from this. And some companies aren't, you know, are already 
done. I think that, you know, we have to, we have to look at how we can make change with what's going to come of this. And I think that these companies are going to be forced to have to, to start over again. And mm. I think there's beauty in that. I think it's difficult for the, the kids that are training right now and that are missing out on these opportunities that don't have the facilities to keep up their training, that are missing out on these years to build what they had already started with their school or with these companies. But I think that the, the great thing about this is that we really are going to have to change the structure, um, you know, whether it's it's the structure of what a theater is. And I think that having outdoor experiences and going into communities that don't have haven't had the access or the opportunity or the interest to be a part of this world. I think this is a way of starting out by going into these communities and exposing them. That's also a big part of why the ballet world isn't diverse because it doesn't it doesn't reach more than one type of community. And I think that this is a really beautiful blank slate to start from for the dance world. Yes, it's it's financially we're going to have so many issues coming back to, but I think that um, this is a real amazing opportunity to be able to include more people because that's where we're at in the world. I feel like people's eyes are wide open. It's just about people like me using my voice and my platform to keep the momentum going. We've talked a little bit about some of the, the questions about how the ballet world changes or goes through it, but there are people who right now are really struggling. And I think that while all of the arts have been impacted heavily as all live entertainment has been shut down, I would assume that ballet is in almost a different world because you're all you're athletes also. You have to keep your body in phenomenal shape to be able to do what you do. Is there anything that that people in ballet are going through that you think it is important for the world to recognize that's different? And I'm curious to know how you're helping fellow dancers out. Yeah, you know, something that I've been so proud of, and, and I definitely have to credit um, Under Armour for for it is you know with the first commercial that i did with them um, the first ad campaign i will what i want it really allowed people to see dancers as athletes in a, in a different way you know it allowed for us to pull back the curtain which i think the ballet world has often been so proud of you know keeping what we do and the work and the struggle behind the curtain and then when you open it up it's like this is this beautiful fairy tale and it's effortless but i think at some point you know, people, they assume it's easy or they just don't feel that it's that it's something that they can relate to. And I think that there's so much beauty in exposing how we the journey to get to that beautiful product on the stage. With that said, um, dancers don't make a lot of money. Um, dancers live in some of the biggest and most expensive cities in the world because that's where arts thrive. Um, and so in this time, it has been extremely difficult. You know, you think about NBA players and NFL players, and they, I'm sure, have incredible facilities there in their homes to be able to keep up their training. Dancers don't have that. We are taking ballet classes in our kitchens and living rooms and dining rooms and bedrooms, and the floor is not appropriate for us to be dancing on, to be jumping on, to be in point shoes, standing on our toes. There's no space. There's no room. So there's just so much buildup that's going to stop us from being able to do what we do when things do open up again. Like I've worked so hard to be in this position so that I can be a voice for the ballet world and hopefully bring more people with me so that they can have an experience of having a platform and having a voice to be able to share uh, the beauty in our experiences of being a dancer. So I started uh, a relief effort called Swans for Relief with a colleague of mine, Joseph Phillips. And we brought in 32 ballerinas from all over the globe 
to be able to raise funds for their respective companies. And if their companies couldn't receive the funds, um, then they could donate it to uh, an arts organization that um, would get funds to dancers. Because so many dancers have been furloughed, are on unemployment, they're we're not working, so they're not getting paid. Um, you know, I've I've experienced seeing dancers have to give up their homes, move back home. We have dancers in America at American Ballet Theater that are from different countries, and they they can't collect unemployment. They don't know if they can go back to their countries, and so everyone's just in such a difficult position. And I think that's you know, people look at the arts, and it's this high art, and they assume like you know we come from money and that we're all making good money and that's just not the case um so i've been very fortunate to be able to be a voice and to expose so much of what the ballet world actually is the linkedin podcast network is sponsored by tiaa in the last 100 years we've seen financial markets swing new currencies come and go decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough so more than a retirement plan TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid. And he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. For those of us who are not as steeped in the world, as principal dancer, do you have management roles also? Is it your is, is part of your responsibility to be a mentor and a manager and helper to other dancers as well? Or uh, you know, do you have to play a role during this pandemic to help keep people focused and whole and make sure that they are actually going to be able to keep dancing for the theater? Or is that not something that falls on your shoulders? Um, it's not. I, so within the ballet world, I think something that's really beautiful about it is that um, there are kind of naturally built in mentors and, and that type of relationship just because of the way it's structured, you know, the, the knowledge that we gain, um, you know, it's a very old art form. So a lot of it's not even captured on film. So mm -hmm. when we're learning new, when we're learning choreography and something that was created in the 1800s, early 1900s, it's all passed down information from one person to the next. So I think there's naturally that built in type of relationship. Um, but no, that's not the responsibility of a principal dancer, but it definitely has become my responsibility. Well, that's what I was going to ask is it, how do you move into that role? You are, this is not something you've been trained for. This is not something that you probably have seen other people do. This is unprecedented times. What have you been doing to be there for 
uh, your peers. Having had so many incredible mentors throughout my life, I understand the the benefits of of that relationship. And so I already have that type of relationship with so many dancers in the ballet world and in the community that feel comfortable enough to to come to me. And and you know, I'm often just saying like, I don't have all the answers, but mm. it's about having a support system. It's about opening up a dialogue to get each other, you know, thinking about things in a different way or just critically thinking about things that um, you you wouldn't if you were just on your own. And so um, I've just seen how much it's impacted my life and career by having that type of support. And so I, I just feel like it's my duty at this point to be that for other people. What changes would you recommend or wish to be in place so ballet performing arts is accessible for more girl, girls and boys? more facilities, affordable gear, tools? Do you have concrete ideas for what needs to happen to make this more accessible? It's really diversifying every aspect of the ballet structure. I think that that, it seems as though um, from the outside, like, you know, the excuse when it comes to just bringing more people in, you know, bringing more diverse communities in is that they aren't there. They're not interested. There aren't enough out there. And um, that's not the case. I think the more that we have representation, the teachers that are teaching young kids, we have um, ballet schools that uh, that have people that, you know, are a reflection of the, the kids that want to come in and be a part of it. And then that trickles up all the way to the top with board board of directors with board members that we have to see a broader array of of who the world is if we want it to look like the world and we want to invite the rest of the world in i think the more that you isolate it the more that it's going to be isolated and and it's not going to continue to grow and so i think that it all just comes back to to that i mean of course the arts always need more funding but i think it's about you know like where do we channel that that money and i think that if we bring in different people with different experiences um, we'll have a different outcome uh, we've got a comment here from jackie buckman who says i want to see ballet in public schools it would improve the education students receive and she teaches ballet in southern california i assume you, you, know, you agree with that uh, I grew up in public schools in San Pedro, California. Before art came into my life, I didn't I didn't learn in the way that we are forced to learn in school. You know, everyone's treated the same, that we all sit down and we read a book and we're supposed to all learn in the same way, and we don't. And it wasn't until art and ballet came into my life that my mind, like everything shifted. I saw things in a different way. I learned in a different way. I absorbed things differently. And that's the benefit of exposing children to the arts. It's not an extracurricular activity. It should not be categorized in that way. I think that it's something vital that every human being should experience to be whole, to use your mind and connect it to music and connect it to body. And, and that even relates to STEM. I've talked to dancers and young girls that are also in STEM and, um, and that connection is, is, is so clear. But unless you experience it, you just it seems like someone's just you know twirling around in a tutu and, and there's not much to it. You talk in your book and in other interviews about coming to realize that you belonged in this world and how you decided this was your home. And I, I haven't seen you use these words, but a lot of it goes back to imposter syndrome and this question of, you know, when will someone discover that I'm actually a fraud, that I don't know what I'm doing, they'll finally reveal that they don't think that I should be here. I'd love to know how you overcame that feeling. 
I think it's important to acknowledge and recognize that as human beings, like just because you reach a certain levels of success or have done, done a, a, you know, incredible things and accomplished, accomplished things doesn't mean that you don't still have those like, thoughts and feelings. Um, you know, it's not like we're programmed uh, computers and you press save and then you can just, and then you build from that feeling of, of feeling like, oh, I'm exactly where I should be and everyone loves me. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's okay to have those feelings and to constantly be not doubtful, but reassessing um, where you are and why and how you can be better. You know, of course, having an incredible support system around me. My husband's constantly there to remind me of those the hard work, the 20 years it went into getting to this place, you know, on those days when I'm like, how did this happen or like why me and and it's it's about the hard work you know that i've put in and really just remembering um that it's it's okay to be the first it's okay to be successful and i think that's something that's just often uh, as women as women of color that we're kind of told like that you know we should be so fortunate and you know to be in these positions but it's like no we deserve to be here as well well, at one point you thought about leaving ABT and you were considering going, you didn't know where, where your future was there. And instead you stayed and fought for the position you currently have. What went through your head when you decided to stay? How did you make that decision and what should other people learn from it? Well, I was the only black woman in American Valley Theater's company for the first decade of my career. And that really weighed on me, you know, over the course of many years of just thinking like, why do I feel that I'm any different and I will succeed and become a soloist or become a principal dancer? It was really important that the black ballet community really embraced me, you know, outside of ABT and, and Arthur Mitchell, who was uh, the, the founder, um, artistic director of the Dance Theater of Harlem and also was the first black principal dancer with the New York City Ballet. Um, in like the 60s, I think. He offered me a contract with his company, The Dance Theater of Harlem, which is an all black company. And um, and I think that's when all, everything clicked. And I thought, why am I letting these doubts or, or you know, trying to project what the future will be? Um, why, why would I let these things that don't even exist really um, hold me back from something that I want? And having his words in my head saying like, you are a queen, you are more than capable of, of becoming whatever it is you want to be, that allowed me to feel that if I don't start somewhere, then how will the ballet world ever change? If I feel like, oh, I will never be the first principal dancer, then I'm just stopping before I even start. And I feel like if I were to have gone to an all black company um, though that has made such an impact on the ballet community. But how will that change the ballet world? How will that change ABT? So I think that's what made me stay was the possibility of what it could do for the future of dance and so many that will come after me. Well, I love that idea about not spinning out, not assuming that the future in your head is going to play out. You, I think a lot of us imagine worst case scenarios. We assume things are going to go some way. So we say, forget that path. I'm going to go down this other path. Instead, you stayed on this path and you got exactly what you wanted. You have been hurt in the past. You've had to uh, not take roles that you wanted. You've not gotten roles that you wanted. What's your strategy for dealing with a tough situation, whether that's an injury or not getting a part or anything else? How, how, do, you, how do you get through that? You know, as, as artists and as athletes, um, you definitely build up an incredibly strong mental strength and strategy. Uh, I think that 
when it when it came to not getting certain roles, I, I'm constantly saying, especially to dancers and especially to women, to young women, that it's okay to use your voice and communicate what you want. And that's something that took me so many years and people pushing me to to own my voice and that power. Um, you know, whether it was going in and actually sitting down and having a conversation with my artistic director and saying, these are the roles I would eventually like to do. What do I need to do in my training, my artistry to be on that path to get there? And it seems so simple, but it's really difficult for a lot of people to do. And I think it's easier for men because it's expected that you have that power to be able to do that. And women aren't often told that they can do that. Um, when it comes to getting through injuries, I think that it was about trying to keep stay in control of the things I could control. So, you know, whether it was having, um, you know, six stress fractures in my tibia and having a plate screwed in, at least I could still use my torso and my arms. And so it was like watching, you know, watching videos, working on things that I could move, um, finding different teachers and mentors. And, you know, I'm constantly just uh, thinking of myself as a student forever and, and forever learning that you could, your, your body is always changing your, your thoughts and your experiences are constantly growing and changing. So I'm just open to always continuing to learn. You take classes for life. You never actually stop taking ballet classes, even when you've reached the top. So how do you develop new skills? What is it? I mean, at this point, wouldn't most people look at you and be like, Mr. Copeland, she knows every single skill there is available in ballet how do you gain new skills what do you do the human body it's literally changes day to day hour to hour so um it's not like you know i've spent my you know 25 years training and now like i'm a computer and all of that information is there uh but from day to day and again the older you get uh the more you have to figure out how to do things in a different way so I may take ballet class or I may have a performance the night before and feel so balanced and have this amazing experience. And then I wake up the next morning and my body's in a completely different place. And it's always trying to find that balance, always trying to get back to zero. Um, so the work never ends. It's, it's not like you've, you know, I think any athlete would say that you don't just accomplish something and then you forever have that skill. You have to continue to work on it. And you've talked a little bit about this, that you know, your voice has really changed over time and you were a different Misty Copeland than you were 20 years ago and then you were definitely when you started. If you could go back and tell that 13-year-old girl uh, who was in the Boys and Girls Club, what kind of advice would you give her about what to do or how to act or how to think? And if you could go back and be your own mentor, what, what would you say? I would say that it's, it's okay to be you. <laughs> it's okay it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be, to have anxieties, but to not let it consume you. That most people, most of your peers are going through something similar and that you're not, you're not in this alone. I think that was just a lot of my fears and, and things that kind of held me back as a child was just feeling that I was the only one experiencing the things I was experiencing. So I would just say to, um, be patient and, and calm and, um, and just know that things are gonna work out. <laughs> that was Misty Copeland. To learn more about her work, visit her on the web at mistycopeland.com. Misty talked about not mistaking the human brain for a computer. She promoted the idea that even experts have to keep their skills up. And as she said, she plans to take dancing classes until forever. 
What skills matter most to you? And if you've been working from home or furloughed during the pandemic, what skills have you been working on to keep sharp? Let me know over on LinkedIn using the hashtag thisisworking. As always, to get more news and insights, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners find the show. This is Working is a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm and Madison Schaefer with help from Michaela Greer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. Keep dancing. See you next week.